Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It is a wonderful opportunity I have today to welcome an old friend, Rabbi Yaakov Trump, who is the rabbi of the young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst, a very, very prominent young Rav in our Jewish community, originally from Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, rabbi Trump is a person who uh, not only has continued to build his shul into a vibrant Makom Torah, but also is a person who teaches an extraordinary amount of Torah. He gives online Anach Yomi and Aliyah Yomi, Psuke Hadaf. You find his name on all sorts of podcasts and other opportunities to learn online. And he also teaches at Shulamit High School for Girls. A halacha course is there. So Rabbi Trump, thank you so very much for joining me today. It is a pleasure to join you again. And thank you. I have to tell you, it's wonderful to be back in Chicago without having to feel the weather. Uh, well, our weather today, we're in the 40s or the 50s. You know, it's Baruch Hashem, it's beautiful out. Uh, so Rabbi Trump, I just want to really get started with a very simple question for you. You have really done amazing things. You were in Chicago as a member of the Yu Tor Mitzion Kolo for a couple of years. So many people from Chicago know you quite well. But since you've been at the Young Israel, things have really blossomed. Now you've been, you've studied in Israel. You were near, you were in Baltimore, near Israel. You were at YU. You're from South Africa. And now you're in Lawrence Cedarhurst. How do you see the changing scene of synagogue life? How are you doing what you're doing, and how do you see things are moving nowadays? Thank you, no, Roman. Thank you. It's it's um it's a it's an opportunity. I thank you thank you for the question. But the truth is, is that biladai. It's there's there's so much more that goes on in successful schools than one person. So I, I certainly am not responsible for all the success. And there's many other people, pre predecessors, and people who are on the team who are incredible in making that happen. But I, I I will say that it's been a process for me to try to understand things. And it also just takes me back to Chicago days um, in, a, in a special way. And the people that I learned from and continue to learn from, including yourself, um, as we live just a few blocks away from Kins, and seeing you in action um, as a shul rabbi was an incredibly important part of that. Um, and I'll just also say just this week in Chicago, it's a, it's a, it's a time which causes me to pause and think and that is is we were also members at uh at Shari Tzedek with Rai Gross um of blessed memory and um uh, we're still just reeling in that in that uh, in that um terrible loss for the Chicago community in the the world and the truth is is that you know every person goes through every young family goes through their I'll call maturing process in community a lot of young people don't know what community really means yet and they slowly start realizing that they actually have to be involved. And we started getting involved and being involved. The first shul membership I paid as a young couple was to Shari Tzedek when we sort of were getting involved in Chicago and um, and uh, to, to see what a community is, what it means to be part, to to pull one's weight, to be involved. And uh, Gross was uh, certainly a huge part of that in his uh, very calm and balanced equilibrium and the way that he treated everybody and um and the role modeling that he did, always addressing the issues of the day in such a uh, with such a calm and uh, uh, balanced perspective on things. So just it, just coming back to one specific marker in time that to me is especially meaningful, especially this week where I reflect on that. Um, that's one one aspect of it. But there's truly the, 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 there's there's a broader a broad array, and that is, is that it goes down to when I think back to my childhood. My, the Rabbi Marshall is a person I've never Rabbi Moshe Kurtzdag, he was the the, the, the based in South Africa, 
and six foot four towering uh, t- towering individuals, the Rabbi Benayakim at the time, that was the shul and it turned to the observatory minion. And he, he had a long black frock and a long white beard and very terrifying to, to, to behold. But I remember when I became bar mitzvah and uh, the Shabbos after I became bar mitzvah, he said, no, Yaakov Tzvi, why don't you daven? And that was it. So it, it started from a young age where people said, you've got to get involved. You've got to do things. You've got to carry on getting involved. And, and uh, over time, I've had the opportunity of witnessing incredible people who've been involved and in trying to model little pieces of what I'm trying to do after those many people who do those things. But it's it's very hard nowadays. If you look at Jewish organizations in particular, people are so busy with their lives. Uh, people are working harder than ever before because of the costs of being part of a Jewish community that to get volunteers to really be involved is unusual. More shuls and schools have professionals who do things that a generation or two ago volunteers did. Everything from uh, running programming to uh, a lot of the functions of even fundraising. It used to be Balabatim did everything. Are you suggesting that to build a, a successful shul, we have to, it's really around the volunteerism or is there something else that people are looking for? That's such a good question. I don't think there's one magic bullet that fits all, but there, there are a few pieces that I'm slowly in my my short uh, span of experience I'm becoming to see. Um, I used to think that it was the rabbi who made the show. And um, the truth is the rabbi does set a lot of tones and does make a big difference in the show. Um, but ultimately, a, a shul is a volunteer-run organization. So there's a very small staff, a very small amount of people who are actually being paid, trying to make a huge difference in the impact in, uh, in the lives of the people. Um, but the truth is that a lot of it really works when everybody's involved, when people pull up their sleeves and get involved. And so the, the shift in perspective was that a shul isn't so much a uh, a place where you come to watch a show, but more of a place where you come to get involved. And like you're pointing out, you know, as, as the statistics have been showing that if volunteer involvement across America has been dropping uh, precipitously already. Robert Putnam was talking about this in the 2000 and in the last few uh, few years and the last couple of decades since that book, I mean, even more so. And um, so the question is, is so how, how, how does it work? How do you how do you get people involved? Um, because people don't just step up, step up. People aren't aren't, aren't volunteering um, by by themselves. Um, and I think that a lot of it comes down to um, first of all um, belonging. People need to feel a place to belong. Once they feel like they have a place to belong, they feel ownership. Um, but number two is is that a lot of times uh, people just are unaware of what goes into any communal organization. They just don't understand the nuts and bolts, the requirements, how much how much effort, time, energy, decision making, balancing it goes into things. And the more people are, are brought behind the scenes, the more of an appreciation. The more of an appreciation, the more they're willing to either get chased away, but more generally speaking, actually get involved um, as well. And so I've sort of shifted looking at a, at a shula from a so to speak a model of a nonprofit or a spiritual organization as much to a volunteer-based a uh, um, non-for-profit, which is trying to figure out how to get as many people involved um, as possible. And the more people are involved, the more ideas they bring to the table, the more perspectives they bring, the more experiences they're willing to share. And those are the most incredible things. I'll give you an example. Just recently, we did, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off here. Uh, no, just, you're, doing well. just, you're doing well. Just recently, we had a, uh, a very fascinating um, uh, opportunity. We did a mental health awareness Shabbos and um, very, very sensitive, very difficult um, topic to address, but something which so many families are, are struggling with. And I'll tell you the two most successful, most beautiful, most appreciated programs in the last year were based on this model, where we had five panelists, and instead of doing a Shabbos morning drasha, 
We had those people who came up on the, uh, came up on the stage after Daphne had finished, and each of them shared a perspective of either their struggle, a family member's struggle, or a clinician's perspective on the Shabbos mental, mental health. It went over, you know, it, it was certainly went a little longer than expected, but there was a Kiddush afterwards for debriefing, and it was the most meaningful Shabbos. We did another one on Shavuos called Stories of Transformation, people who had a journey to get towards Judaism. I mean, we had five of them on the stage as well, and each of them shared their story. It was so meaningful. Over 300 people attended. Why? Because it wasn't one person. They're not the bottleneck of information or ideas. It's being able to share, democratize that experience, and it makes connections in a much more meaningful way. And that's that's part of the, the goal, is to be able to allow more people to shine in their own ways. So, so you went to Near Yisrael, you went to Kermbi Avenue, you went to Reitz, Yeshiva University. You were a member of a kollel here in Chicago. What prepared you to be able to take have this perspective, to be able to lead a shul like this? Once upon a time, the Rav was supposed to be the halachic expert, and people went to him to hear shiurim. It wasn't the d- democratic organization you're suggesting. Today, it sounds so very different, and yet um, our preparation is pretty much the same. Right, you're 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 correct, and, and the truth is there is no preparation. I mean, the 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 most outstanding place for training rabbonim is Ritz, which really does it's it's an incredible job under the auspices of Rabbi Penna, and um and really you know both in terms of halacha, machshava, learning, and at the same time also pastoral care. But at the, at the same time, all of that's theory. You 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 spend four years learning that, and you go out into the world and. Everything you learned is, is different. It's much more complex, much more um, difficult, and there is no preparation. And the only way that, I mean, again, I, I'm still learning. I'm no, no expert in the field at all, but I'm, I'm trying in the little way that I can to, to figure things out is through the combination of experience, actually facing these issues, and at the same time, speaking and learning from the people who have preceded one. And so I, the way I look at it, it's just the, the, the sort of the model I, I map it out as, is I see that the, the rabbinate is, is essentially four buckets. Um, and the one bucket is education, which is so the, the sheer giver, the Joshua giver, the putting putting together programs of education. That's one, and I think perhaps the most obvious of the buckets. But there's another bucket, which is the pastoral giver, and that's the sickbed, the the, the life cycle with the birth, the the upshare and the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah, the wedding, the um, all, all those, all, everything from the beginning to the end. There's the pastoral giver, and a lot of that goes unseen. Right, tremendous amount that goes unseen. Then there's this third bucket is the organizers. The organizer is like programs. Like Roman, thank you. You're doing an incredible podcast. It takes a huge amount of work to put this up together, put out the advertising, organize who's speaking. These are small things that perhaps a person watching this podcast doesn't realize. They just log in. They don't realize all the organization that went behind it. So what about the next program? What's the next brochure going to look like? How are we going to try to engage people where they're at? That's all the organizational piece, which is not education per se. It's more bigger picture. And then there's, um, and then there's, uh, I would call the most unseen, which is called the ambassadorship, which is where the rabbi has to sort of represent the shul, whether it's at the Vada Kashras or whether with local politicians or go to the school events or the press conferences and so on to to represent the community and to sort of give a voice to the community in that respect. And these four things are moving at the same time. The day is is, is sometimes a great overlapping of all those different different pulling um, requirements on, on a person. And so it's trying to learn how to balance the two of them and to also bring, as I was saying before, bring people in to understand what's really going on. And so I, I look at Rabbonim, the predecessor, Rabbi, Rabbi Tadelbaum, who's the Rav of Young Israel Lawrence Cedarhurst for 32 years, was an excellent Rav. And he was uh, a tremendous, a tremendous role, role model and leader. He would. Uh, he was a tremendous caregiver, uh, a a bal hara, a poisek. As an example, when I had the opportunity of learning here, and there's been many, many rabbis I look to. I look to 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 people. I I served with Rabbi Hochberg as a rabbinic intern, 
when I was in when I was in Queens. Um, when I was in Chicago, I learned specifically when I was in Chicago. I learned from Rabbi Mantanki. I used to watch you all the time and appreciate you what you know. I, I, I personally think and that Rabbi Mantanki must have a clone because I don't know how it's possible for him to run a school and a shul and a community at the same time. Um, uh, but I, I certainly, I, I, so I, I, I personally was uh, awestruck by the amount that you do with such. Um, so, uh, such calmness. And as I mentioned beforehand, Rabbi Gross, but every person along the way to me is a role model that somehow I'm learning something about dealing with the situations and I apply to my own way. And if you were looking forward, which I'm sure you always are, but if looking forward five, 10 years, what do you think are going to be the major issues shuls are going to have to deal with? Well, I think the shul is, is really a microcosm of what's happening in the community, which is a microcosm of what's happening actually um, ironically, in America, which is apathy. Um, so, so the the major thing that we're we're dealing with over here is is that we're we're ensconced in a culture around us which um, has lost its general sense of values, um, which guide it. Um, so th- that means to say that the general principles that people choose or follow when it comes to making a, a choice in life, the two primary primary operating, um, um, we'll call it. Um, I wouldn't even call them values, but um, but, but models are entertainment and convenience. That's what pushes people to make decisions, right? So in in like an obvious example, you know, we all appreciate staples, but we're still going to buy from Amazon because it's more convenient. And that that affects every aspect of our lives. So I know it's important to have big shawls, but it's much easier just to go, you know, to the basement across the road where I can get whiskey after one hour and 15 minutes, not have to hear a rabbi and then, you know, come 20 minutes late, leave 20 minutes early and the changes in the middle, you know. So those, there's no value that's operating over there. It's just it's convenient. So that's going to affect Jewish community. Already is affecting Jewish community, and I think we're going to have to um, take stock um, um, regarding that because I think what the crisis is is happening is really is already happening is is that it affects children, children who are grown up in apathy without values, without being driven to do something, without passion to change something, are going to also grow up. We're um, not finding themselves, not finding what the, what it is is that's important, and all kind of all other kinds of narratives will will co opt them in the absence of having a passion direction enough. So I find this last point of yours fascinating because we've been watching here in Chicago and it's around around the world the stabilization of shuls, um, where we could have twelve shuls on one street within uh, half a mile. That because everybody wants their own little brand, their own little flavor, and where large shuls are having a very difficult time going of it. Is that the same thing you're watching in uh, in the five towns in New York as well? For sure. It's happening everywhere. The, the, the idea that this idea of, and I, I know Kins, you know, is this beautiful, beautiful shul, cavernous, you know, magnificent stained glass windows, rows upon rows of pews, you know, beautiful stage. That that model of, of filling that kind of place up on a Shabbos, we have the same thing. We have, we see our, our main shul seats 600 on a Shabbos, you know, um, no, no shul. No shtibble is getting 600 people. So what people will say is that, oh, but shtibble XYZ is doing so well. Yeah, well, they've got 30 seats. <laughs> so, you know, if there's 33 people, it's an overflow crowd. Whereas, you know, we could be getting 120 people on Shabbos and it looks empty. Right. So that's that's one piece of the one piece of the, of the puzzle. But part of it is, is that there is a value in Judaism. Judaism is a value driven um, system. So ju- Judaism has halacha and halacha says there's a value of lots of people being together. That value is losing the battle against convenience. And convenience is 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 faster, quicker, nearer, but it's also something deeper. And there's a positive side to it, which is people want to be involved. They want to feel like they matter. And so sometimes people will join these, uh, join these operations because they matter more. 
right? If there's 30 people who are involved and they somebody's putting out the, the kiddush and somebody's setting up the chairs and somebody's getting the whiskey, they feel like they're part of something. And so part of the way to to address this, there's many ways to address this, is is to is to create microcosms within larger establishments. You can't have this large enterprise with you know a bottleneck top with a few people who are in charge. You need to have groups who are feel like they're doing something that really are doing smaller sm smaller projects which they feel that they actually own as well because that's where they feel the belonging it won't help the convenience aspect of the breakaways but it will as it will it will as well in terms of the involvement there's also another piece just over here which is that i think that we also need to shift our perspective of what really matters in terms of being considered a shul so it used to be in the year before hashkomas and shtibbles everybody was in the main shul everybody can that's not what's happening and fighting that, I think, is 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 trying to catch a runaway train. I think that we need also um, embrace the perspective that it's possible for people to be involved in shuls in multiple different ways. So, as an example, there are many people who who don't come to shul on Shabbos; they prefer the shul around the corner, but enjoy learning with them in a chabur on Tuesday nights, and that's their connection to shul. And you know, that's that's a special way to to be able to learn. And I value that chaver, even though. The shul's not there for the flavor or the space or the, for for them on Shabbos. So it's creating multiple portals and being more embracing of, uh, of of different avenues of access to shul is another perspective. Now you also work in a high school, uh, but you also obviously in the shul have children of all ages. And one of the fascinating uh, shifts that has occurred in our communities with the building of Eruvim, which goes back 40, 50 years in many communities. In Chicago, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of the West Rogers Park Eruv, that um, we have created these children's groups, the Shabbat morning children's groups, and, and youth minyanim were around before, but we have a situation where we don't have children davening in our shuls anymore. They are in separate places, and a child can go almost to bar mitzvah and never have to attend a regular minyan but they're into some kind of alternative scenarios. I find that to be a bit of a challenge because we've never taught them how to be in shul, as a, when the, which they will do hopefully as adults, or maybe they'll reject it as adults and go to the shtibel. Have Do you have those same kind of challenges in your shul? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I, I would grow, go into shul with uh, with my parents. Uh, my father passed away when I was very young, so I, I found other people to sit next to, but I was in the main shul. Um, and I would really, that was my shul experience. I grew up in shul. By eight, I was going to shul to say Kaddish. So I uh, I had that uh, that experience. I was very involved in shul. And I think that there is something to be said, an incredible amount about learning from the way parents parents are um, with one's parents. I think that, that today there's a little bit of a, a, a challenge um, in the sense that um, some people view shul, and it's a great thing. It's an opportunity as as a way to um, you... Uh, outsource you know so to speak or babysit while while we have a good time in shul which is great but it's not the way that kids are going to necessarily gain the greatest experience um the model that i think that i think is really worthwhile considering um and this is a parent by parent basis is that you you should take your kids to shul when they really want to come to shul rather than when you, you want to get to shul meaning say maybe leaving them at home a little bit longer and seeing and and when they de desperately want to come to shul that's when they deserve to and that could mean leaving them in groups until they get to that age um, but uh, but making it something that that is sought after, so increasing the demand in it as well. Um, I will just say that, that that although this is a challenge, I just if you reflect outwards to the opposite, where there's a shtibble, it's not the it's it's not like that. That's the that's the panacea either, because you go to the shtibble situation, there is no there's no groups. Not only there are no groups, there's no space for groups, which means that children bichlal aren't in shul at all. They're not in any environment. Whereas I think that having groups in a in a, in a big shul still step up from that, where the shuls, children are at least davening. 
that have a role model who's a teenager or perhaps a mora who's actually involved with them. And from time to time, we bring them up to the shore itself to 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 bring them as part of it. So I still think that's a, a better option than the alternative, which is the absence of anything. And in terms of getting people involved in programming, is there a program that you really want to do that you haven't been able to do yet? And what's your dream program that you'd love to do? So many dream programs. The list is so long that it's hard to it's hard to even know um, where to start. Um, I find that I, I, you know, when I when I when I wash the dishes, that's when all the all the ideas come in. I have to make sure to after I have those moments to actually think to uh, or go for a walk to uh, to write them down. There are so many programs. What I'm trying to do is is just to to hear what people are saying. Meaning, uh, you know, it's it's all very nice to have all these great ideas, but you have to be able to listen to where people are at. So, as an example, a few years ago we had some seniors saying there's nothing for us. So we created prime time for seniors. We have an amazing program on Mondays for seniors. Fantastic. You know, then, there, then, there, then there's uh you know, the, the what is the, that program before you go on? What is the program? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. We'd be partnered with the JCC, the local uh, JCC. Um, we have a social worker come who does uh, chair exercises with retirees. Um, like, you know, so it's music and exercises. And then we have a lunch program following and we have a rotation of speakers. So like, you know, we just finished a season where we had, uh, you know, we had a pulmonologist talk about coughing and we had a, um, a state attorney talking about, play, you know, wills and planning. And we had a, uh, you know, we're going to have a bingo a bingo day, you know, in a few days, just really nice activities. And that's why, because there's a crowd of people who say we want something. This is something we're looking for. Something I, I'll tell you, which I think is is in, in incredibly important coming up is, um is that there's a lot of people who have aging parents and caring for an aging parents is it, it presents its own unique set of skills and challenges and it's a, a special opportunity but there's a lot of people specifically in that in that demographic i think that that demographic requires some sort of um we'll call it seminar or program on the, on that and i'd love to get more people involved in terms of actually talking about that stage the the, the piece that that's that's also missing is i just sort of see it as different um, pieces of the pie is the teenage demographic. What I would love to do is I would love to get more girls involved in teen programming at the shore. That seems to be one of the things that, that there's a fall off, which I, I, uh, I'm very concerned about is that girls are involved and they come to groups and so on. And some of them become teen leaders, which is great. Youth leaders in the, in the, in the, and they, they sort of come back and they give back to the shul. But a lot of them will reach bat mitzvah age. And if they don't have a, con a connection to sit with their mom during davening, which some of them don't, um, they sort of disappear. That the teen minion is is predominantly boys, and you need to think about ways to get the girls involved in their own independent way in shul life as well. So that's another sort of an example of a vacant space. I mean, demographics and in, in terms of in terms of ownership and leadership. Recently, I'm sure you came across there was a um, op-ed piece by a, uh, a by Ben Shapiro, which uh, attacked the modern Orthodox community. There have been some responses that have been uh, written to it as well, but basically uh, he was uh, declaring the demise of modern Orthodoxy. Right. How do you feel about that? Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks for, 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 for raising that. Um, I, uh, I actually, a number of people sent me that article as, I'm, as, as, it was, as it was trending and going around. The first thing is, um, obviously that, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you want to make a point, it's obviously much easier to use a broad brush stroke. So it's nice to misunderstand the OU and the and YU and sort of just, you know, with an unsubtle, uncontextualized way to, to slam them, which is what he did. Um, and obviously context would have proven, um, a lot more subtlety and a lot more, uh, um perspective so but that's that's generally what happens is when you want to you know when you want to do demagoguery that's what happens um but there the, there was a, a comment in that in that um article which i did think was was intriguing and um his observation was 
um, that he was his attack was on modern Orthodox rabbis. And um, and he, he he said that modern Orthodox rabbis don't teach, don't talk about controversial issues. They only talk about issues which are nice for people to hear about, charity, giving, and so on, which he says are not unique to modern orthodoxy. Um, you know, we're called, you know, more Haredi, right-wing Judaism, and Reform Judaism all agree on those values. And even Baha'i, he says, agrees on those values. So there's nothing, I mean, they're meaningless values, right? And and that was his uh, his observation, that was his attack. So Jude- modern orthodoxy kind of just shies away from anything which actually matters. That was, that was his, his argument. Um, so I thought about that for a while. And um, one perspective, I think that's worthwhile considering, because there is, there is, there is a truth to that. The one perspective is that it's not about the modern Orthodox rabbis, but it's more about the community. What does the community want to hear? If every time the community hears something which requires sacrifice, change, or pivoting, they get upset, then the, the question is, is, what is the community really looking for? Is the community only looking to 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 hear things that met, matter to it? I think that's a very fair point. But on the other hand, I was speaking to this uh, uh, speaking to this issue two weeks ago from the pulpit, and um, a doctor in our community came up to me afterwards, and she said to me, you know what? It's, you know, in the end of the day, Speaking about charity and goodness to other people is not a foregone conclusion. It's not obvious to the rest of the world. If you go out there, there are many rich people who don't give a dime of charity. There are many people who don't care about other people. And to, uh, emphasizing what it is and how that informs our day-to-day life is not something which can just be sneezed at and ignored as if it's the easy part of Judaism. So I, I think that, that it requires a lot more perspective. I do think that there is some soul-searching that the modern authors community in general um, should be doing that. I don't think Ben Shapiro is the one to be talking about it necessarily um, um, itself. And uh, I, I would say that when it comes down to these things, that's why we have lay and rabbinic leaders, which means to say, as an example, in the YU situation, it was with consultation of both the board and the Rosh Yeshiva. Let's put that in perspective. Those are the folks who gave us the rules during COVID. Uh, the, the, the Rosh Yeshiva guided us through those things. I'm so proud to be part of this community that didn't just jeopardize all rules or jeopardize or, 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 or jeopardize um, or, or, or embrace every um, every con, uh, con, um, every conspiracy theory. I'm so proud that they actually decided to make a change in YU because there was a consultation with the Rosh Yeshiva. And so I'm very happy to, to and proud to stand behind that. It, uh, many years ago, Sam Heilman, the sociologist, mentioned that any any group that uh, begins to experience a sense of triumphalism, like we've done it, we've won, it generally is the sign of the beginning of their demise. And so the fact that we continue to question and wonder and, and criticize is actually a sign of strength and not a sign of weakness. It's just something to consider at the same time. But uh, as a member of, uh, a proud member of the modern Orthodox community, you have a young Israel, which was a pioneer in uh, engaging younger people back in the early part of the 20th century. Do you find challenges within our community that really you work on very strongly, not just the question of charity and kindness? Yeah, I think it comes, again, comes back down to the very idea of, of, Apathy versus connection, and that's that. That's really what it is. It's it's less about branding today. That's why this whole business is is sort of meaningless. You know, you can call the YU community, the OU community. You, you can give all the brands you want. In the end of the day, the, uh, it, what what it comes down to is is do people care enough to live a certain life or not? 
Do they belong enough? Do they feel connected enough? That's what the main challenge is here. And it's person by person, parent by parent, child by child, teen by teen, trying to figure out what, what is my space? What is my purpose? What is my mission? How am I going to make sacrifices to get there? What, what is this all about? How is this my identity, who I am as a Jew, not just simply as an ancillary cultural hobby from time to time? That's that. That's the, ma the major issue. It's not a foregone conclusion anymore that a person wakes up and is Jewish and will always be Jewish and their family will all be, all be Jewish. Not in our communities, not in any community. And that's that. That's the main question: is being able to connect people with what really matters in life, what what really is their identity, the chain that they're carrying from previous generations, that they should be able to continue to tell that to their grandchildren. That to me is the biggest challenge and the, the biggest, uh, most most I would say also rewarding of, um, rewarding of goals that we can incrementally move people towards and move ourselves towards as we're doing it. And believe it or not, Rabbi Trump, our time is up. Oh, but on that note. I think it, it. I again have to thank you for all that you're doing for the Jewish community. The mere fact that when there's a posuk on the daf yomi, you have a comment to explain it in the context to do so, brings Torah to so many more people than would have been before. And all of the different ways you're trying to reach out to others, that question of trying to change the apathy to engagement and involvement is really an important me message for us all. So thank you very much, Rabbi Trump, for your time. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. And uh, you should come back and visit Chicago. It's warming up already. The winter's over. <laughs> I have to tell you, uh, I, I, the, the best of memories and experience have come from Chicago. And I'll just end with one little uh, snippet is that when I came to the Chicago Kolo, Rabbi Brand sat me down and said, tell me, what are you an expert in? And I said, well, I thought I was an expert in certain things. And he said, no, no, what are you actually doing? Like, do you know, do you, do you know something? I said, no, not really. Actually, now that you put it that way, not really. And he, so I said, what do you want to become an expert in? So I said, well, I enjoyed teaching Nach. So he says, okay, I'm going to give you a Nach share in Kins. And so we started doing that. And I have to tell you, because of that comment, because the opportunity of being in Chicago and learning through the color, learning with you, being in the Ida Crown Jewish Academy and, and continuing that, that was that what led to the Nach Yomi and the app and the Aliyah Yomi and all these things was, where are we going? And so I, I have such appreciation for the YU Tournament and Kolel, the Kins community, the Chicago community at large. And I hope that Bezra Hashem can continue to do the, the Jewish people proud as we all work together towards a, a greater goal. Thank you so very much for your time and continue to do great things in your community and for all of American Jewry. Thank you very much, Rabbi Trump. Thank you. Thank you.